Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So we're continuing a series today that we started last week, um, and this series is called Stories because every one of us has a story. Every one of us has a Christmas story. We saw Pastor Todd's Christmas story was that he got stilts, and why does that not really surprise me very much? Like something about that, yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, I get that. Um, but we all have stories. Some of our stories are tragic and heartbreaking in regards to Christmas. Maybe it's the loss of a friend or a loved one. Uh, maybe our stories are full of joy and laughter. And whatever the case may be, all of our stories matter because they matter to God. And what we are doing during the course of this series is just looking at some of the stories surrounding the nativity story. Uh, so last week, uh, we took a little bit of time and looked at Zechariah. This week, we're going to look at a different story. Uh, how many of you know that kids can give some pretty terrible Christmas gifts? Did anybody know that? <laughs> Again, there's like three honest people. The rest of you are like, I don't think I'm allowed to say that because that seems mean. But it's, let's be honest, kids give some terrible gifts. Um, and the, one of the reasons why they give terrible gifts is because most kids are not focused on what they could give. I don't know about you, but my kids don't make a list of gifts they want to give away at Christmas. They make a list of, of gifts they want to get, Right? Because they're focused on what can I get? And that makes some pretty crummy gift giving when you do that. Um, when I was a kid, I was no different. I gave some pretty crummy gifts. And in fact, this week I, I called my mom and I said, hey mom, um, I need you to send me a picture of this one particular gift. And so they're gonna put it up on the screen. Uh, but I, I, one Christmas, I, I took a box. There's a box like this one. It, my dad had a watch, an old Seiko watch, and I kept the box and I used to store stuff in it. And so I took the box and I repurposed it and I used it for my mom's Christmas. And if you can see my name on the box, my handwriting is not any better than it was when I was eight years old, by the way. It still looks exactly the same. And so I gave it to her for Christmas. And when she opened the box, she discovered... A box of rocks. That's right. Who doesn't want a box full of rocks for Christmas? And for me, as an eight-year-old, I'm sure I was thinking, you know what? Um, what can I give my mom without having to spend anything, without leaving the house? And I'm like, I've got it. Rocks. It's perfect, right? So for me, I wasn't really thinking about my mom. It was really just about uh, what is convenient, what's easy. And I gave her rocks. A box of rocks for Christmas. Uh, and some of us do the same thing. And when we look at scripture, what we know is that God has given us his very best when he gave us Jesus. He held nothing back from us. And what he asked for us is to do the same, is to give him, him his, our very best. But so many times we bring him seemingly a box of rocks. And what we're going to look at today is, um, is what it really means to, to bring our best gift to God. And I want to look at a life of, uh, of someone that you've probably heard of. The title of my message today is King of Christmas. And, uh, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. If you're following along um, online, you'll see this. If you're here in the room, you're going to see it on the screen. You can follow along on version if you're there. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says this. <clears throat> not at, not now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, <clears throat> behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Um, so we call them wise men. Sometimes they're called kings, uh, magi. But these were men who were religious, 
but not religious like we think of. They were probably guys that practiced the occult. Uh, they practiced like Eastern mysticism. Um, they liked all kinds of different things, but they were not people that we would consider um, holy men. Uh, these were guys that when they saw the star rise, they were excited because they knew it was a sign, but they didn't really understand what it was about. And so they went out and searched for the king. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So remember, Christ is a word that means Messiah. So they, he asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so was written by the prophet. And then they, they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, shall, uh, who will shepherd my people Israel. So... They quote this prophecy from the book of, of Micah chapter 5, um, and just as a side note, uh, just recently, uh, a lot of our team, we were laid out our 2018 sermon series, and I'm really excited because our Christmas sermon series for 2018, we're going to take some of the prophecies from the Old Testament that were about the Messiah, and we're going to look at the prophecies and how they were fulfilled in Jesus and what that means for us. So it'll be really, it'll be a great series. I'm excited about that. But one of those prophecies is from Micah. Now, this is important because um, Bethlehem was a very small town. You can think about how small your town might be if it's Indiana or one of the surrounding towns. And now imagine an even smaller town, and that was Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a little tiny town. Um, and so when the prophet, when Micah said that there's going to be one who comes out of Bethlehem that's going to be a ruler, um, this was a big deal because it wasn't like someone today would say something like, you know what, I I'm feeling an impression that there's going to be a man or maybe a woman who's going to be born in the Western Hemisphere who's going to do something great for God. Like, that's pretty vague, right? Uh, this is a very specific prophecy about the Messiah saying he's going to come from Bethlehem because uh, Bethlehem was a little town. And so this is an important prophecy, and this is what the scribes tell King Herod. This, they said this is where he's supposed to come from, Bethlehem. And then Herod, in verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, I'm familiar with this story, and I know how it ends and what it looks like, but it just feels, it just feels insincere to me, doesn't it? It just feels like, I don't know if you really want to come worship this kid, right? Uh, and this is, where, this is where Herod was. Uh, we'll, we'll look at him more in just a moment. It says in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. So the wise men left to go find Jesus. And it says, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it rest, came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> now again, we see that they show up, they bring their very best gifts, all these gifts were very important. They had significant value uh, intrinsically, but also uh, ceremonially. And so they bring these gifts to Jesus. And then they're warned in a dream that, that Herod may be not who they thought he was. And so it says that they went home differently. And, and I know I'm taking a little liberty with Scripture here, because what Scripture is saying is they took a different path back home than they took to get there. Uh, but I'm... I, 
Every time we have an encounter with Jesus, we should be changed. We should go home differently, if I can say it that way. Every time we have an encounter with Jesus, it should change us, even if it's just incrementally. Uh, every time we, we have quiet time, our personal quiet time with God, if it's prayer or reading the Bible, there should be something in us that shifts, that we are changed. And this is what we see here, is that these guys were, they went home differently. They had an encounter with Jesus, and I think we should apply this to our lives. We should see the same thing. That's just bonus coverage, by the way. And it says in verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all, and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So when Herod realized that, that the wise men weren't coming back, he was angry. Uh, King Herod was the boss. He was used to getting his way. And so when he found out that, that the wise men weren't coming back, um, he said, well, they said the star rised about two years ago, so just to cover on my bases, I'm going to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem two years of age or younger. Uh, and you go, this sounds crazy. It sounds maniacal. And it was a little bit, but this was par for the course for King Herod. This was not uncommon. In fact, when we see that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to Egypt to flee, um, there was actually a large expatriated group of Jewish people that had left Israel to go to Egypt uh, that, that history tells us that they resided in Alexandria to get away from Herod because he was such a, a tyrant, such a terrible king. And so they went to this community in Alexandria and they stayed, uh, according to, to history, a few months, maybe as long as a year, but they stayed there until Herod passed away. And then when they came back, um, his kids were in control and they were still a little nervous, so they didn't go back to their home. They moved to Nazareth. And this is where we find out that Jesus was the Nazarene we see in scripture as well. Um, and so a couple things, I want to point this out to you. And again, this is bonus coverage. If you don't like it, just you can blame me, not the Holy Spirit, because this is bonus coverage. This is something I see here. Uh, it's interesting to me that in the last year, we've talked a lot in politics and in our culture about refugees, and people have very strong stances on refugees, and this is not a statement about what you should or shouldn't think necessarily, but what I want to point out to you is that Jesus, who we're here to worship today, was a refugee. He left Israel because of oppression, and he went to Egypt. And, and thankfully, he found a place that he could stay. He found people that he could stay with because he was fleeing oppression. And I think there's something that should be said there to us uh, and maybe our views, uh, how, how strongly we view the refugee issue in our nation, in our world, um, because if our Savior was a refugee, shouldn't that give us a little bit of pause to go, maybe I shouldn't be as hard on my stance and what I think politically. Maybe I should back off just a little bit. Again, if you don't like that, it's bonus coverage, so you can disregard that. You can delete it from the message if you want to. Um, let me move on. I want to go back to verse 2. It says that when the wise men arrived, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It says in verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now when we started talking about this message, you might have thought we're talking about the wise men, but we're not talking about the wise men today. We're actually talking about King Herod. And just so you know, this is not a traditional Christmas message at all. Uh, in fact, when you look at the life of King Herod, it's kind of the opposite of Christmas. Uh, he is kind of the opposite in every way of, of what Jesus is as a king. Um, when you see this question, where is he who was born king of the Jews? It's so important, not just for Herod, but it's important for us even today. Because what he's really asking is, where is the real king? And it's a question we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis. And just like Herod, it says he was troubled. I think sometimes we're troubled when we ask ourselves that question. And to understand really what Herod was about, I want us to take just a second and walk through Herod's life to give him some context. He was known as Herod the Great because of all the things he accomplished. He was born around 73 BC to a family of wealth, and they were in aristocracy. They were in high leadership uh, in, the, in Judea. Um, and so he was sort of born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born into privilege. He didn't know what it was like to need anything. Uh, which again, if we look, compare his life to the life of Jesus, total opposites. So he probably had never been told no very often when he was a boy. And it seems to show when he gets a little older. History tells us that his father was an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So in, in the, the patriarchy of, um, of Judaism, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, and Jacob became Israel. God changed his name to Israel. Uh, and this is where the nation of Israel came out of. Now, Esau was his brother, and his descendants became the Edomites. The Edomites traditionally were not uh, Jewish, obviously, because they weren't descendants of Israel, uh, but they converted to Judaism um, fairly early on. And so what we see is that uh, King Herod probably observed Judaism uh, the same way a lot of people today observe religious beliefs, where you talk to somebody and go, oh, do you go to, where do you go to church? And they go, oh, well, I'm, and then they will say what they are. And you go, oh, that's cool. And, but they go, but I don't really go to church. Have you ever had a conversation like that with somebody? People usually aren't quite that honest with me um, when, I, when I ask them that. Oh, I'm very, I love church. And I go, oh, really? Where do you go to church? Or, I go to that, um, that one church. I don't know which. Well, the one, it's over, uh, you know, it's the one. And Oh, well, what's the pastor's name? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't actually been going that long. And I'm, okay, so uh, that was kind of how King Herod was. Uh, he practiced Judaism so that it looked good to the community, so he could curry favor with uh, the Jewish people. Uh, he, he, in fact, he, he did all kinds of things to curry favor. He built huge monuments. He, um, he built the second temple. Uh, it was called the, the Temple of Herod uh, to, in order to worship God more effectively, but really it was to make the Jewish people feel better about his rule. Uh, he came to power in, a, in about 40 BC. Uh, there was a power struggle in Judea and he went to Rome because under, at that time, Rome controlled Judea. So he went to Rome to petition for the person he wanted to win the power struggle. And we went there before the Senate. The Roman Senate unexpectedly named him the ruler of the area. And they gave him a title. And the title was King of the Jews. So when you hear this, doesn't it make a little more sense why maybe when King Herod heard the wise men say, where is the king of the Jews? He's been born recently 
King Herod probably went, wait a second. I'm the king of the Jews, right? King Herod wasn't a real king. Uh, He was a vassal for the Roman Empire. So he could only do what the Roman Empire allowed him to do. Um, He couldn't have interactions with foreign states. He couldn't make policy with foreign states. Um, He basically was charged with babysitting his area. That's what he was charged with doing. But he still held that authority and power in his kung fu death grip. He did not want to let it go under any circumstances. Um, And we look at this and and we go, man, he was not a great guy. He wasn't. He was so paranoid about losing authority that he would eliminate people from his own court, just have them killed summarily. He had a a dream one time that somebody would trade him, and he had them murdered so that they couldn't actually betray him. It went so far that he suspected his wife and his favorite child, and he had them killed because he wanted to stay in authority. He wanted to stay in power. It was his throne, and it was no one else's to take from him. And it's easy to go, man, this guy was evil. He was maniacal. But the truth is, it's, it's not just a guy issue. This is an individual man. It's a human issue. It's a heart issue. There's a passage in Jeremiah 17, 9 from the New Living Translation. I want to share it with you from there. It says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? <laughs> the heart is desperately wicked. And what we have to understand is um, if there's a king on the throne and someone else comes claiming to be the king, someone's going to be disappointed. Someone's going to have to step down. Because uh, in all the movies I've seen of a throne room, I've never seen a tandem throne before. Have you? Have you ever seen a tandem bike and two people are riding? If the person on the back was smart, they wouldn't be pedaling. They would just let the person in the front do all the work, right? Just tips for those of you that are riding a tandem bicycle. But they don't have a throne like that, do they? They don't have a two-seater throne like, oh, just squeeze in here next to me, buddy. It'll be fine. No. There's room for one on the throne, and that's it. And this is the same thing that's true in our own hearts. There's room for one on the throne, and that's all. Um, The problem is that our hearts are wicked. So when Herod encountered Jesus uh, the first Christmas, he didn't celebrate. He didn't throw a party. This wasn't something to be, to, to be rejoicing about. This wasn't a gift to him. It was a threat to his rule. And, and really, more specifically, it was a threat to his own identity. Because someone showed up and said, I'm looking for the king of the Jews. Where is he? And, and, and I'm sure Herod was like, uh, you're standing in my palace, right? Who do you think is the king? I'm the king of the Jews. See, what Jesus does is he confronts the lordship of Jesus, it'll cause us to confront who we think we are. Because um, we will say something like, you know, I'm in charge of my life. I'm the one who dictates what happens here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I trust God, but, man, I make things happen. And when Jesus shows up in our lives, he, he wants to be lord of all. And what we want to do is make him lord of some. God, I, I love you, but I want you to be in control of this area of my life. Now, I've got this area. You just handle this area, God. And, and that is not lordship. 
See, lordship means he wants it all. Um, I use this word, and I don't want to give the wrong, I don't want to convey the wrong idea, but Jesus is ruthless. He doesn't want just a little bit of your life. He doesn't want to share a little bit. He doesn't want to say, oh, you have your throne and I'll have my throne. He wants it all. He doesn't want a, a bit of your heart. He wants all of your heart. He, he doesn't want a little of your time. He wants all of your time. He, he doesn't want you to, to, to devote, gosh, can I, I'm just going to go here. Uh, he, he wants your money. You know why he wants your money? Because he knows many times he can't get to your heart unless he gets your money. And so we will say things like, God, you have my whole heart, but I refuse to give you any money. Does that sound like he's Lord? I don't think so. Um, if, if, if I went home and I, I, after church day, I found somebody in my house. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Like, oh, this is my house. I'm like, no, this is not your house. You're like, yeah, it is. I would forcefully remove them in the name of Jesus, right? I would lay hands on them repeatedly uh, to remove them from my house. Why? Because it's not their house. I bought this house, right? It's not their house. So they can say it's theirs, but it's not. And this is what happens so many times. The scripture tells us we're bought with a price. And we go, hey, Jesus, thanks for paying the price for me. But yeah, this is my house. I'll give you this one little room. And Jesus goes, but I paid for the whole thing. You're like, yeah, you get that room, Jesus. You get this one little area. Jesus, you can have my future because I'm not sure about my future. But the here and now is all mine. I got this under control. You just leave me be. And Jesus doesn't want to do that. He wants it all. See, this is the problem with most of, uh, most of us as Christians in the Western, uh, Western Hemisphere. We believe, um, we believe the parts of the gospel we really like. So we believe the parts like where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Don't we love that? We go, yes, I need some rest, right? Do you, do you know the passages we don't like? Well, let me read one to you. This is in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. This is Jesus talking, and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you said, Mel, that is really extreme. And I've got news for you. Jesus is really extreme. See, he's not interested in sharing you with anyone. Now, you look at this and go, well, that seems kind of mean. He wants us to hate our family? No, that's not what, what he's saying at all. Let me explain. Um, with my girls, so I've got a 15-year-old and 12-year-old daughters. They're wonderful. They're fantastic. You can pray for them. They're home not feeling well today, um, but they're wonderful girls. I love them desperately, so much. Um, but what I tell them regularly is, mommy is my favorite. I, I tell them all the time. I want them to know, hey, I love you like crazy, but I love mama more. Because mama's going to be with me after they run off with some dude and get married someday, right? So mama's my favorite. And another thing it does is it gives them a big safety net, the security to know that no matter what happens in our world, no matter what changes in our world, mama and daddy are always going to love each other. So there's something to be said for that. So I always let them know, mommy and dad, I mean, mommy is my favorite. I love mom more than you guys. Now I love you guys a lot. So what I'm saying to them is, it's not that I don't love you, I love you so much, but my love for you is exceeded by my love for your mom. 
So it doesn't mean I love them less. It just means I love my, their mom so much that it doesn't even compare. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's trying to say, your devotion to me should be so complete and so full and so whole that, that compared to me, you hate your family. That you love me so much compared to me, you don't even care about your kids. Now, I know that still doesn't sit right with some of you, but this is what Jesus is trying to help us understand. Um, I don't want a little bit of you. I don't want you to segment off some of your life for me. I want it all. And we go, man, that seems like a lot to ask. And it is a lot to ask. But what he gives us is so much more than what he asks from us. This is a hard thing to do, isn't it? To love Jesus so completely that the other loves of our life come a distant second. Um, the reason is I think we're just fundamentally, we're basically selfish people. Um, there's a, a couple, I'm going to call them out, but uh, kids know mine early, don't they? They don't, have to, they don't have to learn mine. We don't have to teach them, no, this is yours. Say mine, right? Somehow they're born with mine in their vocabulary. Uh, it was funny this morning, there was a new couple, and we, I walked them back to the kids' church, and their son had a truck. And I was like, hey, that's a nice truck. And he goes, mine, right? And he's like, I guess I just look like somebody who's going to take their truck. I'm not sure. This kid's four. He's like, mine, back off. Uh, we know it early, right? And some of us never grow out of that because we have to learn selflessness, Selfishness is innate. It's in us. Selflessness has to be learned and cultivated and taught. That's why, unfortunately, sometimes we talk about money around here because we have to learn it. We have to talk about giving things away and being generous uh, like our God is. So sometimes we bring that up because it doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, it says in Scripture, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this to the Roman church, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what it's saying here, what Paul's telling the, the Roman church and us, is that there's a conflict going on in us between the spirit and the flesh. There's this war going on that, that we know what we need to do, but we don't want to do it, do we? And at our core, our hearts tell us, no one tells me what to do. Nobody is going to rule my, nobody's going to boss me. I'm never going to let a man talk to me. I'm never going to let my wife, right? And we make these inner vows. We say, no one is going to tell me what to do because I'm the boss of my life. And this undermines relationship. It undermines God's purposes and plans for our life. And this battle is raging in us between the spirit and the flesh. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Has anybody ever experienced that before? Um, let, me, let me give you an example of this. Um, we are just a few weeks away from New Year's. And you know what that means, right? A whole bunch of you are going to go buy a gym membership that you're never going to use. That's what that means. Because <laughs> you're going to say something like, this is the year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every day, I'm going to work out, I'm going to pray and read my Bible, it's going to be the best year ever, and I'm going to do it. And we all know we should, but most of us do not. Do you know why? Because there's a battle going on in us between what we know we should do 
and what we'll actually do. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? We see this. We go, I know what I should be doing. I know how I need to act. I know how I need to believe. I know what I need to be thinking. Gosh, it's hard. I don't know if I could do that. And the truth is, there's a little Herod in each of us who says, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. This is my kingdom. It's my throne. And I'm not going to take orders from some baby. If you don't believe this is true, if you don't believe there's a war raging in us, if you don't believe that, um, that we struggle with this, let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard for us to pray sometimes? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm the pastor of this church. There are days that I just go, I don't feel like praying today. Was it because I'm bad? No. But this is why it happens. It's because I forget how incredibly good our God is. See, my heart begins to drift, and I drift toward my old nature, which is King Herod, which is selfish. It's about me and my desires and what I get and what I have. Why, why are we so quick to forget how good God is after he answers a prayer? Have you ever had a prayer answered and maybe God came through in your life in a big way? You're like, man, God, this is the greatest. I'll never forget this. And like two days later, you've forgotten it. It's because there's a little bit of Herod in each of us. We drift that way. Our heart drifts that way. If we don't maintain watch over it, if we don't guard it, if we don't continue to push and submit our hearts to God to let him do the work in us that he wants to do. And what we see is earthly kings, they take and they bind and they demand. You know, even in Scripture, um, the Israelites, they cried out to God and said, we want a king like all the other countries around us. All the other nations have a king, we want a king. And at that time, God was the king. And so he said, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. And King Saul came along. He was not a great king. And he was succeeded by King David, who was a very good king. And he was succeeded by King Solomon, who was David's son. And what we see in Solomon's time is he built the temple, then he built it in an oppressive way. Uh, he, he forced people uh, into taxation, high taxes against their will. He forced them into labor. And all of a sudden, what God had spoken to the people was coming to pass. He said, you, you want a king? Guess what? Earthly kings are not usually that great. They take and bind, demand, but true kings, the true king, he gives and he liberates and he invites. See, the lordship of Jesus, I said earlier, it, it, it reveals or it confronts who we think we are, but it also reveals who we really are. Because see, with Saul, I'm sorry, with Herod, he wasn't a real king. He was a king in title only, but every bit of authority he had was given to him by Rome. Rome could have taken his authority in a moment. In fact, there were a couple of times when he supported the wrong candidate and the wrong leader, and when there was a power struggle, uh, he, had to, he had to scramble in order to make sure he kept his kingdom because his kingdom could have been torn away from him because he had no authority. He had no power. He felt like he did, but he didn't. And for many of us, we look at our lives and we go, hey, I'm the king of my, my home. I'm the king of my life. I'm the one sitting on the throne. I control things. But if we're going to be honest, isn't the control you have over your life only because you were given authority by a higher authority? 
See, God has put you in your place. He's allowed you to have authority. He's allowed you to have some say over your life. But at the end of the day, the authority you have is only because it's been granted to you by a higher authority. Um, and I guess the, the real question is, would you rather be a king in title or would you rather be a child of the emperor? Because a child of the emperor had real authority. A child of the emperor didn't have to worry about who was going to come along and take the emperor's authority, right? He, they were sovereign. And this is what God's inviting us to. He's saying, hey, you can keep ruling your kingdom if you want to, or you can lay down your throne and become a child of the king, which is a pretty great trade-off. See, when, when we come into contact with Jesus and he reveals who we really are, sometimes that's a little scary. Because sometimes we prop ourselves up and think we're great. And then when we see in the light of God's goodness and Jesus' beauty who we really are, we go, oh gosh, maybe I'm not that great. Because if we're going to be honest, if there's no one else, and it was just you alone talking, you would say, I know how I am when nobody else is around. Because I do. I know what I'm like. I know where my heart can drift. I know what I can think about at times. I know how I want to respond whenever someone says something or does something. I know me. And when I see myself, I go, I'm not much of a gift to present to God. Because like I said, remember, he gave us his best and he asked us to give him our best. And I go, my best is not that great. Maybe you're a little bit like me. And you go, my best is kind of like a box of rocks, Right? Maybe the gift I'm giving isn't really that valuable, isn't really that important. When I called my mom <clears throat> this week and said, hey, would you, <laughs> would you try to find, do you still have that box of rocks? She said, oh, yeah, I've still got it. She knew exactly where it was, and she went and found it. And I said, hey, would you, would you mind taking a couple of pictures of that and sending it to me? She said, sure. So she took pictures. She said, what are you doing with it? And I said, well, I'm going to use it in my message. I'm going to use it as an illustration, just talking about... Uh, you know, how terrible a gift it was, you know, that I gave you a box of rocks. And she said, son, don't you remember? Those were your favorite rocks. Those were the ones you'd collected. Those are the ones you cherished. Those are the ones you'd spent time looking for. And she said, those were, that was your best gift. She said, that's why I've kept it all these years. So for many of us, we look at our own lives and we go, man, I'm, what do I have to offer? but all we have to bring is our best. It might seem like a box of rocks. It might seem like it's not that much, but when we bring our best and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm giving you my throne. It's not much, but it's the best I have. You know what Jesus does? He cherishes that. He says, thank you. This is the best gift I could have ever received. So today, you might be here and you feel like your life does not amount to much. You might feel like in, in light of who Jesus is, in light of the gift that God gave us, the gift we give him doesn't seem that meaningful, that important. I'm telling you today, God cherishes that. And all he's asking is to you to bring yourself, to lay down your throne and allow him to be king. And when we do that, we'll change everything. It'll transform your life. The greatest gift we've ever received is, for many of us, still unopened. I'm asking you today, are you willing to lay down your throne, to lay down your th authority, to lay down your rule to pick up the authority and, and allow God to be the real authority, to be the Lord of your life, to have it all. 
He's not just renting space, but he owns it all. That's a big thing to ask. That's what God's inviting us into today. Let's pray together. Lord, we honor you today. We're so grateful for every gift you've given us, every good thing you've given us. But God, we're most grateful today for Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you sent your son, that he willingly laid down his life to pay the price for our sins. And God, in light of what he's done for us and in light of his incredible beauty and grace and righteousness, God, our lives seem so insignificant at times. So I'm asking today that as we give our lives to you, let us see how much you cherish that, how much you care about it, what it means to you. Let us see that it might seem like a box of rocks to us, but to you, it's something that's priceless because you value us that way. So God, I pray for every person here who's a believer but has yet to truly make you Lord of all. I pray that we would take that step to submit our lives wholly and fully unto you, that you would take our lives and do incredible things with it. God, that we would not segment our lives off any longer, but you would be in control of the whole thing. It is all yours because you are Lord. Lord, I ask right now for, for those that are here that have never really trusted you and never really given you their heart. I pray today would be the day that they would allow you to be the king and allow you to be Lord and that they would lay down authority and give it fully to you. Lord, I know you can be trusted. You're a king that is benevolent and loving and kind. So God, I pray that we would trust you and trust your heart today with our hearts. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I just wanna ask if you're here today and you say, Mel, I've, I've... I'm not walking with God. I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. Or maybe you said a prayer once, but you've never really walked it out. You've never really been obedient or faithful to do what God's asked you to do. And you're here today and you say, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. I want to confess him as Lord. If that's you, I I just want to ask you, would you be bold enough to put your hand up? I'm not going to make you come forward or embarrass you. I just want to pray with you right where you're at. So would you be bold enough today to say, Mel, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. If you are, raise your hand real high where I can see it. You can put it right back down. Thanks. A couple hands on my left. Thank you. I see you in the back over there on my left. Praise God. Who else? Who else wants to join these and say, yes, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today? I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, just to pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for laying down your life to pay the price for mine. It was the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. And today, I'm giving you my life. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and help me live a life that brings glory to you. From this day forward, you are in control and you are Lord. Help me submit my heart every day to your authority. Let me trust you. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today for that. We'd celebrate that today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture tells us it's your new creation today. So what that means is um, God doesn't see you anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son when he sees you. Uh, so no matter what you've done or been through, no matter what your background check says, no matter what your credit check says, today you are a new creation. Now, the bad news is, um, 
If your credit check is a wreck, God probably didn't magically fix it. What it means is God's gonna help you navigate through those difficult seasons of your life. You're not in this thing alone any longer. Uh, So I'm excited for you. I can't wait to see what God's gonna do in your life, but we wanna help you take the next step in your faith journey. And so there's a couple things you can do. Number one, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. On one side, it says salvation. On the other side, it says need prayer. If you raised your hand, you respond, you prayed that prayer today and you meant it. Um, I want you to fill out the side of the card that says salvation. Fill that out and just drop it in one of our offering boxes before you leave. There's two in the back of the room here, one in the balcony, and one just outside these east doors as well. Just drop it in there on your way out the door. And then uh, on Monday, we're going to get in touch with you. We're going to email you or or send you a a letter in the mail. We're going to get you some resources. We're going to help you take the next step in your faith journey. If you can't reach one of those cards or maybe you're watching online and you want to respond, you can simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. And when you do that, we respond back to you. We're going to help you take the next step. We're going to do the same things you would if you filled that card here in the room. So again, thank you for trusting Jesus with your heart. I really believe it's going to change everything in your life. Here's what's going to happen now. The team is going to lead us one final song. We're going to worship together. And while we do that, our prayer team is going to come up. And they're going to be on either side of the stage. So if you need prayer for any reason at all today, feel free as we begin to sing to step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members. And if you're here today and maybe you recognize the fact that you are a believer in Jesus, but you've never really surrendered your whole life to him, there's areas of your life that you're still sitting on the throne. I want to challenge you during this final song, really ask yourself, God, what are the areas of my life that I need to lay down, that I need to get off the throne and let you be Lord? And then I want you to respond. I want you to do what you need to do this week. Maybe there's a relationship that needs to change. Maybe there's a habit that you need to give up. Maybe there's something you need to start doing. Maybe something you stop doing. Whatever it is, I want you to just ask God, God, what are the areas of my life that I haven't given you lordship and given you control over? And, And lay those things down so that he can be Lord over all in your life. So stand to your feet. We're going to worship together one more time before we go. Guys, I I tell you this all the time, but I I never want you to forget. I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you.